Well, as I was thinking about what to share with you this evening, I was thinking of all of us sitting here in this long lineage, this long lineage of the Dhamma. And I stopped into the Gratitude Hut. If you haven't stopped there, I highly recommend it. And thought of, um, there in that hut are pictures of many teachers present, and maybe one or two generations back. But it goes back and back and back, all the way to the Buddha. I love this feeling that we're sitting here in this direct lineage, this, this from one person to the next, from one disciple or student of the Buddha, communicating their understanding, their, what they've learned to the next, all the way back. And when the Buddha died, I mentioned this in one of the talks, he said, you know, there's not going to be a follower, a leader of the group that you're supposed to follow. It's the Dhamma. It's this truth. Passed from person to person as the pointing, this Uh, Greg was beautifully pointing out yesterday, it's the pointing, and then each person realizing it for themselves. The Dhamma, good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And a little bumpy along the way. And as I was thinking about us sitting here in the lineage of the Buddha, I was thinking about the way that the Buddha taught and the way this lineage has carried on. And it's very much in relationship. It's a process that we are in together. And the Buddha taught primarily in response to people coming to him and asking questions. Somebody asked in the question bowl, why so many lists? Why this list in this way and, you know, the five this and the seven that? And that's only the beginning of it. If you look at the suttas, it's amazing how he broke things down again and again and in one way and another way. What was that that all about? What's interesting is that each time he did that, he was responding to a particular person, trying to find a way to respond to them. And I really like this because it points that there's all these skillful means that we put out here, all these different ways of seeing and practicing. 
And when the Buddha responded to one person, he didn't do it in private. He did it where everybody could hear. In case not only that person, but some other people might get some benefit of it. So here we do a mix of it, right? We have our time with you individually to try to respond to the individual curiosities, the individual questions, and then we come in here. But as I was thinking about this way of the Buddha and thinking about the overflowing bowl in the teacher's room of questions, I thought maybe it would be good to take some time with some of those questions. So I brought myself a stack of them that I, I had a good time. I took all your questions and I spread them out all my, over my bed and tried to categorize them. And some of them I just sort of stood up and looked at and went, I don't know. I don't know that one. And these go together and... Ooh, this one's too advanced for me. I better put that aside. (laughs) So before I start, though, I thought I would share with you something that the Buddha said. He said there were four imponderables. So what are the four imponderables? And he said these are not to be speculated about. And he said, whoever speculates about them will go mad and experience much vexation. So which four? The range of powers of the Buddha, the range of powers of the concentrated mind. Isn't that interesting? We can't figure out this concentrated mind. In some ways we're saying, saying you can't really figure out exactly how this concentrated mind and insight arises. Like we can't just say this is the way it works. The concentrated mind, which is what we've been doing here, cultivating this concentrated mind. Conditions come in, but exactly how it happens, imponderable. And... Speculations about the universe. By that, it's sort of like, where did we come from? Where are we going? How did it all start? He said, nah, don't spend your time there. Bad plan. And then the last one, he said, is the results of karma. Or karma, for those of you. Karma is the word that's sort of been popularized in this country, the Sanskrit word. Kama is the word used in the Pali texts. So he said the results of kama. Well, there are a bunch of questions in here about kama. So I thought I would try to make some distinctions about how we don't vex ourselves with the results of kama, and yet let ourselves touch into it and learn from it. Something very important, the, the uh, Dalai Lama was once asked, 
what do you think if people are studying the the Buddhist um, understanding? What is more important, emptiness or kama? And he said, kama, karma is more important, but because without it, emptiness can be misunderstood and misused. So since I shared with you about emptiness, I thought I'd better round out the picture with some car- answering some of these karma questions. So, you know, sometimes we have the first question, just a really, that came around it is, how is karma not personal? Or is it personal? You know how in, it's really easy to, you know, you get sick. Something happens. You know, naturally you ask, what did I do? I know some years ago I had, I was diagnosed with cancer and I went through that. I was like, what did I do? How did I get this? And I see people a lot of times trying to figure it out. And and a simplified version of karma thinking, I did something to create this. And yet, That's not what the Buddha was pointing to, that you are somehow, everything that happens is the result of some past action. So to say, to get in there a little bit, the word karma means action. That's what the actual word in Pali is, action. And it means particularly action that has intention connected with it. So... The law of karma is the law that when we do actions, when there's actions, that there are results. Things happen. There is an impact from our actions. And we can see this for ourselves. I can think about you've done something, something generous or something kind something that allows you to connect with your heart. There's, an Im- there's many ways this impacts you that can be understood as the effects of karma. The first is that before you've even done anything, you're getting ready to do something kind. And your heart feels different. There's a like yeah, this feels right. And then while you're doing it, there's an impact on you, right? Not only is the kind action happening, but you feel it. And it can be very simple here. You know, it just might be that moment you hold the door for somebody or you don't take the last bit of the food, somebody's coming up, you see behind you. You notice that somebody always hangs their 
code on a certain hook, and so you just kind of go to a different one. You know, very, very simple. But it just has a resonance in the body. And then afterward, there's a nice remembering of it. Oh, yeah, that felt right. And even if it's not a conscious reflecting on it, there's a felt sense about it. Like, and the wonderful thing about this that I find is that this really points and helps us understand and connect with the goodness of our own hearts. That when we see how acts of kindness and generosity and compassion and that all those things, that they feel good to us because they resonate with our basic goodness. They're closer to who we really are. So then we start moving into some of the aspects of karma that we're used to thinking about. That, you know, the way we act around, around us, you know, the way we behave at home and our friends and our families, the way we treat others, it often comes back. There's this great, you know, old fable, I like it, was that um, there's somebody sitting at the gate to a city and, or this village, and somebody walks up and says, so I'm coming from this other village and I'm coming here and I'm wondering, how are the people here? Are they nice or are they kind of stingy and mean and the wise person sitting at the gate says hmm well how were the people where you came from where you came from and he says oh well they were kind of small and mean and a little tending towards doing unkind things wise person said well you'll find them much the same here And then somebody comes along, new person to the village, and says, how are people in this village? And the the wise person asks him, how were they in your village? Oh, they were kind and generous. Very nice to be around. Mm. You'll find them much the same here as well. This point. It's not only to our attitude, but also to the way what we put out there in the world. We all know it, right? When you're in a grumpy mood and you go out in the world, it seems like everybody's against you. You're just emanating that energy. And it could be in specific actions or just in your attitude. It, sometimes we can talk about it as instant karma, right? It's a sort of a little phrase that we talk about, you know, you, you go and, you know, I think of, I saw one the other day, it was a really good one at, the, at a grocery store. Somebody came back in and um, I was at the checkout and they came back in and they were there and they said, oh, you gave me the wrong change. And the person started to go, oh. And they said, yeah, you gave me a 10 instead of a 1. And uh, 
the cashier was a little startled and, you know, said, oh, oh, okay. Um, and they sort of figured it out. And, uh, and you could just see and feel the gratitude of the cashier because they're responsible for their till, right? And you could see the person going, and as I was walking by, they said, yeah, it's interesting being an, being an honest person. <laughs> you know, a little sort of marveled. Oh, oh. And sometimes we don't really know. You know, it, we can't really tell how our actions are going to play out. A little while ago, I was selling a car, not something, a used car, And I didn't really relish selling it because I don't know about it. Somebody's going to buy it. Are they going to like it? But we've sort of figured out what supposedly the worth of it was and listed it. And a nice uh, older couple came and looked at it. And we'd listed the car for $6,300. And they came and they looked at it. and, And they said, and they drove it and said, okay, yeah, okay, we like it, we'll buy it. And I was like, wait a minute, aren't you going to have it checked out? Aren't you, you know, going to bargain with me? You know, this isn't, and I was like, well, this isn't actually working for me. So, um, (laughs) so um, I said, it's okay. I'll take it tomorrow to the mechanic and I'll pay to have them check it out. <laughs> they said, okay, thanks. So I took it to the mechanic and uh, they said it was all in good shape except that the CV joints in the front were going to probably need to be real broken down in five to 10,000 miles. And it would cost about $600 to replace it. So I came, I called the people up and said it checked out fine, except for this problem. So what I'd like to suggest is that we split that cost and you pay me $6,000 so that we're splitting, you know, this future cost. And they're like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And they came and they got the car and they were very happy. And I was very happy. It was such a relief knowing that I had gone through and done what felt right to me. You know, they could have helped me out, but it was okay. We worked it out. So right there in the moment, being with it, that's our karma playing out. And what it also then in that moment, as we're um, acting in the present moment, we're also creating habitual patterns of mind. That phrase, whatever, fires together, wires together. Patterns of thinking. It's like those grooves in our mind. There's, it's, an, it's a little bit frightening when you think about Every single moment, you are putting something into your mind stream. 
And whatever you're putting into your mind stream is increasing the likelihood that that's what's going to happen next, in another moment, in the future. So if you're sitting there putting in ease and calm and allowing and openness, even a sense of compassion towards the anger or frustration or impatience, you're still dropping those intentional moments, those intentional acts of kindness again and again into your mind stream. Cultivating those grooves. And when we get all caught up in our story again and again, we're cultivating that. Sometimes I think about that when I... Um, Okay, confessions. I like chocolate. I like chocolate a lot. And sometimes I just go, wow, if I eat another piece of chocolate right now, I am just cultivating this wanting of chocolate. And do I really want to cultivate that right now? It's interesting. Okay, so sometimes I say yes. (laughs) But I have learned to say no to the second piece of chocolate torch or something like that. And I have learned, oh, chocolate after 2 o'clock keeps me awake at night. Bad plan. So, okay, I'll cultivate this allow this desire for chocolate sort of at an acceptable time after breakfast, that varies. (laughs) And only until two o'clock. And then no, and then let the mind stream rest for a while. But watching, what are we cultivating in each moment? When we, um, I'm, I was an architect, and so, like many architects, I designed and built my own house. And as we were doing that, I got to make a lot of choices you don't usually get to make. And so, at the kitchen, I'm, I'm sorry, at the bathroom sink, chose to put a windows looking out at a flower garden instead of a mirror. And I remember a friend of mine, we were on a river trip for about seven days and she got back to the house first and she ran around all over the house. And when I came back a couple hours later, she was like, where is the mirror? (laughs) Nope, don't got one. I didn't want to cultivate the me, all those attitudes and ideas and 
reinforcements of how it's okay, it's not okay, it should be better. It's. I didn't want that in my mind stream. I really notice it. Like, I think, gosh, we come here on retreat and all of a sudden, <laughs> there I am. I know people have taken to putting the shawls over the mirror, having, having had enough of I at some point in the retreat. The place that the karma we really get tied up in is this idea of some sort of mysterious results from our actions in some future time or something mysterious that happens right now, that it's like, why did this happen? That's where the Buddha was saying, the results of kama are imponderable. We can see and work with all these other ways that the kama is playing out. But some mysterious version in the future, and To sort of clarify this, he pointed out that there's all sorts of different kinds of kama. There's this this kama that we have may have impacted through our actions, but there's also the physical laws, and this is a kind of and this is a kind of kama, which is like the order of the seasons. Don't you notice how the seasons affect you? They affect our what's happening, but it's not like you chose them. The chemistry of our bodies, the way physics happens. And he pointed out there's all the biological aspects, all the biological conditions, the biological karmas. They're actually called the niyamas, but they're these influences, these conditions. You know, an apple tree grows from an apple seed. Things grow when they're watered. Our genetics. All these play in. Why does something happen to us? A lot of times that we're understanding that more and more now, scientifically with genetics and all. Wow, there was a tendency there. Psychological laws, conditions unfolding of how our minds work, what we've picked up, what we've understood, how we were brought up. And he points that all of these, and then there is the unfolding of the intentions, of our intentional actions. So he was really trying to make it clear that, you know, accidents, climate, body, illness, all these things happen, weather, not our fault. Karma is not a way to blame ourselves or someone else. There's so many factors. And yet, we can see how what we do matters. 
how right now in this moment and the next and the next. So someone else asked, are our wholesome actions choices? Are choices worth making? Amongst all wholesome actions, are they all the same? Yeah, it matters. Matters a lot. Those wholesome actions will lead to less suffering to changing the conditions. And yeah, some of them matter more than others, right? We make little mistakes or do little things. We have a thought or a little moment of forgetting. And yeah, they do affect our mind stream, but they're not the same as those big ones, killing and stealing you might notice there's lists of the wholesome actions. And the wholesome actions, there's three of body, which are not, not, um, not killing, not stealing, and not misusing our sexual energy. And then there's four that are of speech. So aren't you happy that we relieved you of four possible unwholesome actions for an entire month? (laughs) Mean, unkind, untruthful, slanderous, disharmonious, disharmonious speech. None of it's happened. You could just just think, you just could come here for a month and be quiet and your karma would have a great lift. But while we're here, we also cultivate other wholesome, wise view, kindness, generosity. All of it affects us and affects those around us. So related to this was a question about causes and conditions. The person said, will you explain causes and conditions? Are they synonymous, like cease and desist, as in stop and stop? (laughs) Are they kind of sequential, like love and marriage? Sometimes. (laughs) So what is their relationship? So causes and conditions plays into this whole thing I've been talking about. Conditions are these endless stream, the, you know, everything that's happening everywhere, as I talked about the other night. Cause is viewed as that there's a latent cause in something. For instance, the um, two examples. First of all, the condition. So the death, um, 
a condition of a resulting condition from birth is that there's death. It's going to happen. But the exact cause, now as I talk about that, actually, I'm not sure about that. There you go. Okay, I'm going to use a different example. So it's viewed that a, a mango seed is the example that he uses in the text. A mango seed is going to grow a mango tree. That's the cause of a mango tree growing, is that there's a mango seed. But conditions, there are many. Soil, water, sun, more water, more sun. If any of those disappear, then it won't happen. There's really many, many, many conditions. One way that I think it might be useful, it's a common phrase that we use, but one way it might be useful to think about it, that we can use it in our practice, is to think about that when we're reactive, the cause for the reactivity is in us. We're the actual source of the little burst of impatience. There's all kinds of conditions outside of us that may affect the arising of that, but it's here in us is the cause. And then there's many conditions. The reason that might be helpful is that sometimes in our deluded moments, we think that somebody else made us angry. Isn't that funny that that's like a turn of phrase we use all the time? You made me angry. Couldn't be further from the truth. Nobody made you angry or made you impatient or even made you happy. It's all the conditions that came into play. And the actual making of that was from inside. And that is what's so wonderful about this practice. Is that even if we can't affect all the conditions, we can acknowledge that they're happening, but we can affect what's here. And that gives us the possibility of responding from a place of freedom, from a place of ease. So I want to say, I give a couple more examples about the conditions and the cause. There was, I was in um, Bhutan recently, it was just a few months ago, and I was traveling, I have a friend there, a guide, and there was a group of us together. And we were traveling from one place, we were flying, a little internal flight from one place to another. And tiny little plane. And we were going to get on the, about to get on the plane, and there was all of us. And the guide, you know, he sort of has a whole group of people to sort of watch out for and take care of. 
And there was a Bhutanese woman there with her baby. And she gets on the plane. And when we get off the plane at the other end, a couple of people start to notice that our guide, Namge, he's talking to the woman and she's apparently flying by herself. And um, so he starts unloading her of all her lace bags and he's got them sort of draped all over him, you know. It's no different. They're you know, sort of pink bags and furry animals and stuff draped all over him. And then he goes and he's following her along and we go to get to the, the carousel and he gets the um, gets a cart and stands there and we're waiting for our luggage and he's like asking her to point out her luggage and puts everything on it and um, then helps her out the door. And somebody asked him later, like, did you know her? And he was like, no, no, but I met her. You know, I just met her. And um, a, we, a number of people were really touched by this. And we really looked, we noticed the conditions that were in place there. The cultural conditions of generosity, of that this person was alone and needed help. And the response, natural response in that culture is to help out. But the, it still took that little moment in that, even in that mind stream that's for him to choose to do that. But the conditions supported it. And when we think about karma, it helped her in the moment. It was nice for him. But there was more impact of it because all these other people saw it happening and went, wow, that was interesting. When we're in an airport, do we walk up to the person with the child and say, how can I help? And actually, he didn't even ask, how can I help? He just started doing it. In our culture, that almost be seen as weird. You know, somebody walks up to you and starts taking their bags, you know? It's like, what are you doing? This assumption of generosity. On that same trip, there was another occasion. There, we were hiking, we were a long hike, and we had been a very long day, and we were hiking down, and we had a lovely... Um, our senior member of our group. Forgetting, I think she was 77. And um, we, it'd been a big day. And she, were, we were coming down, just switchback after switchback. And um, at one point, I had to, the phone, we had a phone that worked, and I called back to see how people at the back were doing and Namge answered the thing. And all I heard was him kind of laughing and a bunch of giggling in the background. It's like, huh, interesting, okay. And they said, we're doing fine. Well, it came to hear later that what had happened was she was very tired and was sort of uh, having a hard time. And so the, two of the guides said to her, here, stand up on this big rock. And she was like, okay. And then they said, okay, now jump. And they each had a hold of her arm. And she jumped. 
and they just like glided her down and then she'd walk and then they'd and they just the three of them went down the trail with any time there was any little bump she was she was small and they were big and she just sort of glided down the trail <laughs> and she giggled the whole time and they giggled with her and they had this fabulous time so instead of having an epic solo walk, the conditions came together for this completely different response. It's lovely. Now I'm going to get to another question. So there's a couple of questions that were like if the natural inclination of the heart is to open and the mind to be aware and awake, why is it so hard? (laughs) And another person asked basically the same question. Well, because of these things I was talking about, these conditions, there's so many conditions coming into the present moment. And they don't just last from yesterday or our lifetime. They go back and back and back. Every moment that we release greed, aversion, and delusion, we're not only healing this moment, but we're releasing and changing this huge momentum of conditioning. This is why we say that when we practice here, we're doing it not just for ourselves. We can't just do it for ourselves because we're part of this whole matrix. But the reason it's so hard is because there is this huge momentum The Titanic was nothing compared to what we're working with. So that's why it's hard. But it's still doable. And the amazing thing is that we can feel, I sort of said that at the beginning, we can feel that it is when it when it's happening when those greed that greed aversion when are being released when we're in contact with our goodness it's like yes yes There's some I really wanted to answer. Okay, so here's one. So if awakening can be achieved by bringing mindfulness to contact with any sense object, does that mean that one can awaken by contemplating the thought object of harming a noisy frog? First, don't harm the noisy frog, but you won't be able to catch him anyway, so he's okay. Of course, we have these thoughts, and it, it's not the thought. It's the relationship to it. Yes, you can awaken 
to any thought. Some of you have noticed this, that there can be immense anger or fear or even a urge to harm. And we can see it and develop an awareness of it. Oh, this is what's happening. Oh. Remember, it's just a thought. No frogs were killed. It was just a thought. It's not the object that matters. It's our relationship with it. Can you uh, be kind and allowing and present and aware of this present moment? Show up. Show up for that poor little froggy thought. And then it'll be gone, right? You don't need to identify with it, decide that, oh, I'm a horrible person or anything like that. Comes and it goes. So I wanted to address a long question about, um, it's about body image, body image challenges. The person specifically asked to the women teachers, but I think in our culture, it's not just women who have challenges around body insecurity and self-hatred around it and unpleasant feeling tones whenever I look at the body. And I, first I totally get it and it's so sad what our, what the, our minds are occupied We've, we have been, we are so permeable. Sometimes I like to say we're like a sponge in water. You know, there, it's sort of like an illusion that we can open and close the sponge, but it's just all the water going in and out of it. You know, our minds are colonized by uh, ideas. unskillful and harmful ones. And it's not easy to free our minds of these ideas. The ideas about our bodies, ideas about other people's bodies. And it comes up around shape and looks and age and race and ability. And the first thing I would say about working with it is acknowledging that it's there. Really helpful to acknowledge it's there. Notice if you've probably had tons of reactions, subtle sometimes, not so subtle, to everybody here 
or whoever you saw. You know, just that little, like, everything from all the people you don't even notice because somehow they don't feel important enough to you based on how they look. To all the people that you might think, oh, I'm better than that person in some way. Or I'm less than. And it's amazing because, you know, we didn't get to choose what we look like, what our face is like. Talk about impersonal. And there's this, I think, um, sometimes around body image, there's, it's especially challenging because there's all this noise coming in that somehow you're responsible like if you ate the right food and did, you know, the new diet and the right exercise plan and you wore the right clothes and put on the right beauty products, that then, then you'd have an acceptable body. The story. We're not the only ones who make up stories. There's stories out there that are being sent, that we're taking in. And to recognize the story in it. To recognize the pain in it, to feel the compassion, to see and feel the suffering in it. And then to recognize again and again that our minds have been occupied, that they've been taken over. And that part of what we're doing here is freeing our minds. And it takes a long time. Like I was saying, the conditioning is intense. So again and again, to notice it, to feel the dukkha of it, that first noble truth, to feel the suffering of it. We often want to skip that one. Let ourselves feel it and then recognize. Be kind to the fact that we're occupied, that we've been cultured in this way. And then find the freedom from that story, just as we find the freedom from others. Okay. I'm going to end with a light one. Will you talk about the use of a meditation shawl or a blanket and other props? Is it important to have one? (laughs) We have them, but the teachers don't. Well, that's because we've advanced and we're beyond meditation shawls. No. It's because I'm sitting up here and I'm roasting. You know, I think it's um, kind of a bigger question, really. It's like, 
what supports us? What gives us, um, you know, there's some things that do help us, you know, like these statues back here. What, you know, not only do you need a shawl, but do you need a statue? Do you need a statue of a Buddha to meditate? No, I don't think so. The Buddha didn't have one. You know, don't you wonder sometimes when all the teachers come up here and we, when we bow to this, what are we bow? What, what's that, right? I bet everyone would have a different answer. For me, it's like this memory, oh yeah, we're part of this long lineage. And the Dhamma is what's happening here. And it's not about me. Oh, thank God, I don't have to be nervous because it's not about me. It's just the Dhamma. That's what this reminds me. A lot of times we have a response to our meditation cushion. If we've gotten to know it and used it a lot, it's like, oh yeah, when I sit there, you know, we're a little bit like the, the, the Pavlovian dog, right? Put us on a meditation cushion and we meditate. Perfect. It's, it can be really helpful. A lot of people find that if they're, you know, if there's someone who sits cross-legged, they go and they sit cross-legged and something happens. Some, some people find that that feeling of closing into the shawl is kind of like a turning inward. Some people notice that. I really notice that when I'm on retreat. There's something quite like, okay, I'm going in. You know, sometimes we have these supports. You know, I have these red cords around my arm. No magic. There's no magic there. But they're a gentle reminder to me of various people, conditions, retreats that really mattered to me. So it's, we, part of our practice is to find what supports us. What, you know, some of you have reported that sitting outside is the best support, sitting under a tree. The Buddha always said, go find a tree, sit under it. Yeah. What supports you? That's, that's what matters. I'm going to end with a very simple poem. One of my favorite from Gregory Orr. If to say it once, and once only, then still, to say yes, and say it complete, say it as if the word filled the whole moment with its absolute saying, later for but, later for 
if. Now, only the single syllable that is the beloved, that is the world. Let's sit together and let the words fall away. If to say it once and once only, then still to say yes. And say it complete. Say it as if the word filled the whole moment with its absolute saying. Later for, but. Later for, if. Now, only the single syllable that is the beloved, that is the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.